Well, hello and welcome to Learning from Legend with me, Peter Switzer. And this week, I'm talking to Professor Deborah Lupton from the University of New South Wales. Deborah is a prolific writer. The number of great books she has written on us, what we do, looking at subjects like why we're preoccupied with being fat or not being fat, um, social issues around uh, the fact that we're now digitally measuring ourselves, absolutely fantastic books. And she's also written a book about the era of wearing masks in COVID-19. And she's also concerned about the, the mental implications of lockdown and restrictions around that. And she gave me some very interesting observations about what she thinks is necessary going forward in terms of uh, travel passes or vaccine passports and all those sorts of things. This is a really interesting interview from a very, very intelligent woman. Her name is Professor Deborah Lupton, and I spoke to her a day or two ago. Well, joining us now is Professor Deborah Lupton. She's a sharp professor and leader of the, uh, let me put my glasses on, Deborah. I should have had my glasses on from the beginning, Vi the Vitalities Lab. Um, it's the Centre for Social Research uh, in Health and Social Policy Centre at the University of New South Wales. And I want to talk to you about, you know, you know, the mental implications of all the stuff we've been going through since the coronavirus came to town in uh, February of 2020. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure, Peter. All right. So I, I want to set the scene because, you know, I think you should be more famous than you really are. But, of course, in your community, everyone would know you. But the, the, the total world outside of your community should know you. Here are the books you've written up. I thought sounded fascinating. The quantify self, fat, risk, the emotional self, and more, I guess, relevant to, to nowadays, the face mask in COVID times. What, what's your background such that you're interested in all the kinds of issues that I think at least yuppie Australians would be interested in? So I, I, I trained in sociology and biological anthropology, Peter. So I've always had an interest in the sociology of health in particular and in the biological dimensions of, you know, people's cultural practices, which includes health-related, of course, and medical-related practices. And after doing my honours level um, studies, I then went and did actually did a Master of Public Health. So I have professional public health training in epidemiology and health promotion and health economics to some extent. Um, and I actually stayed on in that department, which was at the University of Sydney in the Faculty of Medicine to do my PhD. And in the PhD, I brought together an interest in sociology of health with public health politics. And it was actually on HIV AIDS and the way that the Australian press reported HIV AIDS in the first decade of that pandemic's mm. um, emergence worldwide so basically it was first um, reported in 1981 and so I looked at basically um, every single newspaper article published in Australia from 1981 right up to 1990 which was many thousands of articles and did an analysis of the way the press reported HIV AIDS and of course that changed over those those nine years, um, very much from a gay plague to, you know, everyone was at risk with Grim Reaper campaign, for example. So that kind of background and training meant that when COVID erupted, 
Um, I pricked up my ears instantly because I already was sensitised to the social, cultural and political dimensions of epidemics and pandemics from many years now of studying them. Mm. It's interesting you bring up that because uh, when I first started my radio career at, at Triple M working with the um, once famous Doug Mulray, um, the news director then was a guy called David White who always looked at the big issues, often before many other people, and he did a documentary on, on AIDS and won the Walkley Award for it. And in a sense, because David was someone who, who read widely outside of Australian press, and he could see this sort of happening in some of the international uh, publications. He could see it was going to be a big issue. Um, but so I'm intrigued that you, that was important for you to understand how the media in particular and then ultimately the public respond to, to big threats. When the coronavirus came, do you think the media, well, I guess in the first instance, I think the media quite justifiably played it down because until who turned around and said, this is a pandemic, because I must admit, I was writing stories as a financial uh, person, particularly what, what, what might happen to the stock market. I, I was writing in late January and all February said, should we be ignoring this? It seems like a pretty big thing in China and China's our most important trading customer, second biggest economy in the world. But it wasn't until uh, who then scared the pants off us. What was, how did the, the media respond then yeah, through your eyes, Deborah. Well, it's interesting, Peter. I actually did do an analysis of the first month of reporting in January. I just published that as a blog post. Mm. Um, and I just went through online reports of coronavirus and COVID. Of course, they weren't given those titles in the, until they were, they were later named. But they were it, what, in January. So it basically was a lot of talk in the Australian online media about, you know, this mystery virus, of course, because no one understood what it was mm. when it was first reported. Um, we first started hearing about it very early in January in Australia when mm. there were reports of this mystery virus. There was a lot of analogies made in headlines and in news content itself to SARS mm. um, because that was how it was understood by the medical and public health community as well. And of course, it is a, a SARS-related um, virus, it's, you know, the second version of SARS. So that in itself was an accurate representation. But we definitely got, um, in at least in the first month, it was very much in the Australian press about, you know, something happening over in China or in Asia, something that's, you know, SARS didn't affect us. So I think that gave us a bit of a false sense of, of security, at least in the initial weeks of reporting. Um, but that's understandable because that's how the world was hearing about it. You know, it's happening in Wuhan in China. At first, it seemed like it was only going to affect that area, then it began to spread to other parts of China, then to other parts of Asia. But it took a while for that to happen. Um, and, and there were, were actually calls towards the end of January for the World Health Organization to characterize um, coronavirus and COVID-19 as a um, pandemic. But of course, it wasn't till March 11 that they actually officially did that. But what I have observed is that once they did that in, on March 11th, um, the Australian government sprang into action very, very quickly. So it's clear to me that the Australian government had, did have, you know, they were working behind the scenes from the beginning of January to the declaration of the pandemic in 11, on the 11th of March to, um, 
to get ready to prepare for, you know, how we might need to respond by closing borders and testing people as they were coming. They already were doing that, but by the time the pandemic was officially declared, we then saw a rapid change in government policy. Yeah, and so I, I remember very, very well uh, when it first um, struck because, you know, as a business analyst, I'm trying to work out what the stock market's going to do and all that sort of stuff. Um, and some of the, the predictions made by the very august um, Johns Hopkins uh, uh, Hospital um, were, were really, really scary numbers. Um, did, did, did they exaggerate those numbers um, did they get right? It seemed at the time they were a lot, lot bigger than they were supposed to be, particularly for Australia. Um, I know um, I, I actually got onto the work Chris Joy was doing at the time, and Chris, of course, is not a, a medical expert or anything like that, but he, he got all his, his pointy-headed uh, bond traders to start watching and doing the data, and he kind of predicted Australia might, might be lucky enough to get out of it by the end of May, which he pretty well got right until, of course, the Delta strain came along. But did the media go too far did the even though the experts in the area like johns hopkins did they go too far in predicting the worst case scenario no i don't think so peter um i actually think that in fact in fact the the opposite has happened in many western countries i think that we in western countries like australia and in northern europe and northern america uk um we've seen many governments um being quite complacent and not springing into action. I think actually our, our government was exemplary in, in acting very quickly if you compare with what happened, say, in Sweden, in the UK, in the USA. Um, and I, I still think we are actually all struggling with facing the reality of the pandemic, even now, even 18 months later. I think there's a lot of, uh, I think what we are facing in Australia and other Western countries is we're not used to prolonged crises. Whereas in other parts of the world, they've been dealing with crises like, you know, major, I mean, in sub-Saharan Africa, HIV AIDS is still raging and still killing odd people, for example, even now, you know, and other serious infectious diseases. We've had a lot of control over that for many decades now in the West, ever since the Spanish flu pandemic hundred years ago, really. Um, and, you know, we, we're still seeing it now with the way the, our Australian, you know, federal and state governments are fighting over, you know, the modelling, the predictions for the way out now, even the Delta variant. There's still a lot of denial of, of the realities of the Delta variant, I think, um, at, in various state governments, not in all of them, um, but also in the federal government. And it's because, you know, we as a society, we as a community, we, we, we as a, you know, neoliberal Western democracy, we're, we're just not used to these kinds of crises lasting for so long and we're all floundering still a bit and we're all, and that's, this gets us, I guess, to the emotional and, you know, mm. um, psychological dimensions of these prolonged crises. Yeah, I was going to ask that question then because we are used to solving problems, you know, pretty quickly, you know, even, you know, the, the, the 
the problems with bushfires and floods. It's terrible for the two or three weeks when it's being covered. Uh, but then as, as a community, unless you're directly affected by it, you think, oh, it's all, it's all been fixed now. People are being compensated. People are being helped. And of course, they're not. People are still waiting for their houses to be rebuilt and their lives have been really um, destroyed over that period of time. But the fact that we, we're not rebounding, like I must admit, um, being in New South Wales and my, my son and daughter-in-law and grandson uh, escaped the first big lockdown out of Melbourne because they were just happened to be here on holidays and ended up staying for three or four months, which as grandparents we were really happy about that. But And they, they thought that New South Wales was so lucky compared to Victoria and we were. But now that we're living through the same kind of thing, I've recognised that we, you know, we didn't fully appreciate what poor Victorians were going through. I know I would write that, that I was feeling sorry for them, but I didn't really feel it so much. And so the whole country now is feeling something that they're not used to before, restrictions. Is this having a, a, a only a negative effect on us or is there possibly even a, a, a positive that might come out of this um, period of... Um, depression of being locked up? Um, well, you know, I think it's a very, very pit picture. And I think you're getting to the crux of it, Peter, when you mentioned the difference, say, in how Melbourneians and Victorians felt when they went through their massive second lockdown period last year and how people now in new lockdown areas such as Sydney and, of course, back again in Melbourne um, are experiencing things now. Um, what I have found, I actually did um, a project which involved 40 interviews all around Australia, lots of different areas of Australia, all the different states and in cities versus rural and remote areas. So it was a very diverse group of people, different age groups and so on. Um, I, did, I did those interviews um, during the first national lockdown last year. So between May and July, just so the end of it was just as we were coming out of lockdown nationally yeah. and things were looking up. Um, and what I found from that was a huge diversity in people's experiences. So people living in small country towns and particularly, say, people living on pop rural properties or and people who were retired, who didn't really go out much, who weren't used to sort of going to see events or dining out in restaurants or whatever, um, that was their life anyway. For them, lockdown really wasn't much of a change in their everyday lives. And they didn't really feel that much at risk either because, you know, they were actually not much at risk. There weren't many cases in their area, if any. Um, so, but compare those people's experiences of the first national lockdown with young people living in cities who may have lost their jobs, who were studying from home, who were missing out on the best years of their lives um, by having to be kept at home, you know, with their parents. <laughs> under surveillance of their parents at all times, pretty much. And you were missing out of, you know, of the, out of many of those really great experiences that young people were, you know, learning about autonomy, learning about independence from their parents. Often they had to move back home when they'd been living out of home. Um, so, you know, I did notice from those 40 in-depth interviews just the sheer difference between um, those sociodemic characteristics of people and the geographical location of people and what also came out in those interviews was very much this difference between what state you lived in and how the premier of your state responded in the first lockdown. You know, people were very supportive of borders being closed that made them feel safe and protected. 
So people in Tasmania were very glad to have been isolated from the mainland. Um, and I think they probably still are, you know, because they haven't been still very affected yet by Delta. So that was really, really interesting. And it really got to the profound social differences and geographical differences between just in Australia, let alone how we might compare with, with other countries. And we, we didn't necessarily select for people with mental, with pre-existing mental health conditions, but just because you know, there is a fair proportion of the Australian population in general who are living with mental health conditions, there were some in our study. And what was really interesting there was that people already living with significant mental health conditions, such as agoraphobia, obsessive compulsive disorder, social anxiety, and depression, for example, they had a mixed experience of the first national lockdown. So for people with obsessive compulsive disorder, some of the strong messages about hygiene, about hand washing, about social distancing and so on, actually reignited some of those compulsive practices such as obsessive hand washing. So they really had to struggle to, to overcome that. For people with social anxiety, that was exacerbated because they were, you know, the messages were keep away from people, you know, be worried about people in public spaces. We all had to be. And that kind of fed a little bit into those anxieties. But on the other hand, what was really great to see and really positive to see was that people who had already gone through those lived experiences of struggling with mental health conditions were able to draw on those experiences and the skills and strategies that they had learnt in the past about going through hard times, which those of us who haven't had to live through those experiences were having to confront in a fresh way, really, you know, feeling socially isolated, um, feeling lonely, um, feeling depressed. And I personally think, you know, there's been a lot of talk in mental health communities about, um, you know, a tsunami of mental health conditions that everyone is going through in Australia. For me, that is totally normal. Of course, we are all struggling with feelings of helplessness, loneliness, you know, forbidding about the future. I think that's a perfectly normal response to what we've all been going through over the past 18 months. Mm. But what has been really positive about talking to people with pre-existing mental health conditions is that, you know, how they were able to um, support other people because they'd learned from their previous experiences. They were able to advise other people about how best to care for themselves, self-care, you know, dealing with loneliness. And what I've also found from this research, but also another study I did on people who um, in Sydney and how they use digital technologies during lockdown is that even though we've had a whole lot of pre prior to COVID, we've had a whole lot of negative portrayal of social media, you know, and social media addiction and toxic social media and, um, you know, too much screen time for people. During the COVID crisis, those technologies have been life-saving for people because they've allowed people to connect with other people and to share support and to feel less lonely. So I think that's a really profound um, finding as well, that let's get away from toxic social media because in many ways, of course, it spreads in you know, misinformation. I mean, it's not all good, but it, you know, Facebook support groups, for example, have just been really, really helpful. Video messaging, um, 
people people turn to video messaging to connect with friends and family during lockdown. So um, you know those those have been really important. And if we didn't have those, what would we have done? Yeah, I think the technology you and I are using right now, Zoom, um, has really not only helped a lot of people interact and feel as though they're contacting and connecting with people, it's also been very good for keeping some businesses alive as well. Absolutely. Just good yeah. for people's psychology. Um, do you think the, the end result of this sustained period where we've been forced to in, to embrace something we never ever thought we'd have to embrace, like a, a kind of restriction on our life. And the, the young people who you described, you know, uh, young people are often described as having a real affinity with their tribe. A lot of people, young people come from broken homes and therefore their workplace or their education and learning place is really important to them. Um, I, I guess on one hand, they've felt threatened, but on the other hand, do they come out the other side of this better for the experience, more mature for the experience? Because you and, you and I are both parents and we remember how selfish and immature we were before we became parents. And those little terrorists called children really make you grow up and actually confront your own weaknesses. Do you think this whole um, memory of the coronavirus period will actually create in many, for, for many people, better better people? Look, I think it's really hard to predict that, Peter. Um, you know, you mentioned I'm a parent. I have two young daughters. One's 15, one's 22. So they've been really at the pointy end of, mm. you know, online education, university and school. Um, they've been at the pointy end of being stuck in their rooms without seeing their friends for weeks on end. Um, they've been at the pointy end of the massive increase in youth unemployment. I do worry about I do worry about them and their futures more than more than for myself, much more than for myself. Um, and I do wonder, for example, where I mean issues about having to do online schooling or university or other studies. You know, they're transitory. I think young people will be able to. You know, I don't think they'll be held back too much by having to have done those things. But what I, what for me is the crucial issue is what the employment opportunities will be for young people. And I don't think we, we know yet. You might, you know, as an economist, you might have a better idea than I do about what the future of that might be. But we have seen a real disruption, particularly in the, in the jobs available to young people in a, in a market which was already uh, uh, you know, a difficult market even for university graduates, new university graduates. Um, and as someone who works in a university and also has people of that age group, one's just finished, one, you know, presumably will be going on in a few years' time to university. Um, I guess I've, you know, I've, I've, I've seen both, both sides of that perspective. We know the university sector has been devastated by losses of international students and the income from that. Um, I'm really quite concerned about that as well, about what training opportunities will be offered for young people. So I think there's that combination of what employment opportunities and what education opportunities, post-school education opportunities will be offered for young people in the future, which I think is something we as a society really need to pay close attention to as we come out of the crisis. Mm. I, I know I, I was doing a speech recently where a lot of people were uh, ex 
actually the middle of last year was when the speech was, and they were expressing um, their concerns about the economic futures and they were very depressed. And I actually said, I think probably the best thing you can do is stop watching the ABC because the ABC, I love the ABC, but when you hear all the reports and you, it does make you feel very negative about the future. And I, I suspect 2022 is going to be a, a massive, well, you're, you're the medical expert, provided we learn how to deal with the, the Delta variant and business life starts heading back towards normal, like, you know, can we fly in the state? Can we fly overseas? When those sort of things happen, I do think there'll be a massive economic rebound and there will be a lot of employment opportunities. But I still think that if you're in the wrong industries, this technological burst that we've got over the last year or so could take away a lot of jobs that, like, for example, I used to fly in the state to do speeches. Well, I could be doing a lot of speeches Zoom. So people in the entertainment industry, hospitality, they all could suffer because of what we learned during the coronavirus, and I do worry about that. So as, as, as I can prove to you, I do watch the ABC, but I'm qualified to do so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let, let's just put this in a nutshell then. If you look at this experience, um, you've said you think the gov our government response has been pretty good uh, compared to around the world. Um, B, you, you worry about young people and the way they've had to cope with something that's been imposed upon them well, way before there was a good reason, like, as I say, when you've got a child, that's a good reason to be, you know, restricted and put into a social jail. But this is a, a totally different experience. End result, well, my, my final question to you really is, is it going to be important that we understand why people don't want to be vaccinated don't want to do what the rest of us want them to do so we can get back to normal as soon as possible? Well, you know, vaccination, of course, we haven't really discussed that, but vaccination, of course, is where the government has, this, the federal government has fallen down in badly, very badly, after having started off very well last year. Um, so, and but I note, I note that you know, they have since then really put the foot on the accelerator, both federal and state governments there, which is fantastic to see. I Look, it's crucial that people get vaccinated. There's just no doubt about that. And, you know, we could have a long argument about whether vaccination should be mandated for certain activities or certain workplaces. I, I've changed my views on that. Um, a year ago, I was asked to give some policy advice about whether there should be a vaccine passport. And at that time, I I was very wary about that. I've actually changed my views on that. I think we do need to have, you know, the equivalent vaccine passports to give free, to be able to, to open up and to give freedom and a sense of safety and security for everyone. I think it was when I was doing my masters, I was um, encouraged to do a, a unit on philosophy, and I came across John Stuart Mill, which I wouldn't have come across being a, a sportsman and things like that in my younger days, but. When he, when he said something, the words of the effect, I think, were um, uh, an individual should be free as long as uh, he or she doesn't impinge upon the freedom of others. I think that's probably the relevant story in, in, in asking people to be vaccinated. Yeah, I think so. And it's, you know, it's just the same as wearing a seatbelt. It's just the same as taking out third-party insurance when you're driving. There's yeah. many, many ways that we do these things now in our society. And we're protecting everyone and, and as well as protecting ourselves. And if we want freedom, 
we need to get jabbed. <laughs> um, Deborah, I could speak to you all day. Uh, unfortunately, I only had half an hour, but it's been a great pleasure speaking to you, and I will be following your work in the future. Many thanks, Peter. It was a pleasure. And that was Professor Deborah Lupton from the University of New South Wales. If you want to know more about what we do, go to switzer.com.au and you can see what we talk about on a daily basis. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you next week. Quentin time! Quentin time! <laughs>